Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today we have a very special guest. Dave Rubin is here to speak with us. He is the host of The Rubin Report and he has a new book out called Don't Burn This Book. He's here with us now. Before we get into it though, I have a quick message from our awesome sponsor, Books. Roses are red. Social distancing makes us flu campy with mom this Mother's Day. Don't worry, we've got you. Maybe you can't give mom a hug, but you can still send her flowers from the Books company. And that's Books as in short for bouquets. Books are res- responsibly sourced from some of the world's finest eco-friendly farms, even farms on the sides of volcanoes, so flowers stay fresher longer. And did you know flowers and plants have been proven to reduce stress and boost productivity? I don't know about you guys, but right now, seeing as I'm spending all this time at home, I could definitely use that little self-love to brighten my day and, heck, my space. Big savings means you can send farm fresh flowers, plants, and gift bundles to all the moms in your life. Your mom, a soon-to-be mom, your wife, your grandma, heck, even a dog mom, or treat yourself. Send smiles no matter the miles with books.com slash Lauren. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com slash Lauren and enter the code Lauren for 25% off your entire order. Again, that's code Lauren for 25% off at books.com slash Lauren. Hey Dave, thank you so much for being here. I feel like it's been so long since we we spoke. Lauren, it's good to see you again. You know, last time we saw each other in person, uh, I was headlining a far-right libertarian free speech event in Canada, mm-hmm. where an elderly <laughs> woman was accosted and called a Nazi for trying to cross the street. You were there, so that puts you in company with some shady people. Yeah, well, and, no, uh, th- thank goodness those brave, masked Antifa members were there to shout down that elderly, uh, complicit Nazi. We were lucky that they took action on that. Otherwise, who, who knows what may have happened? Who knows what that elderly woman in a walker might have done <laughs> or her husband who actually fought the Nazis in World <laughs> War II. I mean, it's just endlessly ridiculous, these people. Um, but yes, it's good to see you again. And uh, I always love going up to Canada, actually. That was the last time I was there. Was That was the Maxime Bernier event. And it's like there's so many freedom-loving people in Canada, and I think they just need a little more push into realizing that that's really what they are. As someone who's kind of, I have experience with both Americans and Canadians, I love them both, but I do, the no, the differences are very apparent to me and I can't help but feel like Canadians for better or worse are just a little bit more apathetic or a little bit more laid back, which can sometimes be great because it means we have fewer protests and I think things are less polarized, but also when it comes to maybe standing up when things do go too far, when the government does things that should be called out, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge challenge to get people, you know, kind of up and caring and, and vocal about things. So I feel like we almost need a little bit more of that American, like, um, taken to the streets right now attitude. Well, you know, you got a lot of space up there and not that many people. We cram True. a lot more people into our space here. It makes us a little crazier. You guys, you can go out to the Alberta tundra and not see anybody for a while. That's a little harder for us to do down Very here. Very true. And actually, I mean, speaking of traveling and you coming to Canada to visit, it doesn't seem like that's going to be happening for the time being. And you have this new book that's coming out, which, of course, I want to ask you about, talk all about. But before we get into that, uh, how are you doing with this kind of unprecedented global pandemic that we find ourselves in? I don't know. I mean, I feel lucky that I can still work from home, but also even as an introvert, the cabin fever I would be lying if I didn't say I was starting to feel it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good. I mean, look, I'm, I'm very blessed in that I have a functional small business. This, my studio right now where I'm sitting, this is my garage. So I was a, a little ahead of the curve. 
I suppose, where now every anchor on television right. is now broadcasting out of their kitchen and their bathroom and wherever else. It's like we built a great home studio here. We just put satellite internet up top on the roof so that, you know, we can continue broadcasting. So we're set up really well. You know, I've got my director doing remote directing uh, and David, my husband, is doing a lot of the camera stuff, which isn't really his thing, but we're making it work. Uh, and we've got a new dog here and we're well stocked. And, uh, you know, I think that more than anything else, I'm just trying to provide a little bit of sanity through this madness because, you know, I think that's what people need right now. It's like, you know this, like we've mm -hmm. been living in this bizarrely polarized political world for a long time. And then you get hit with this Corona thing, this pandemic that even though now everyone's pretending, oh, that we all knew it was coming three months ago. It's like, no, that's not really the case. And what I want to do is I want to provide a little bit of space for people to be able to, to think, think about how they want to live. Will this change the way you want to commute or the type of relationship you're in or the type, do you want to live in an urban area or a suburban area? I'm much more interested in that kind of stuff. And then, and then of course, as always, talking about the ideas that I talk about and how they're relevant to what's going on right now, the ideas of classical liberalism and, and libertarianism, and, and, uh, and also just trying to remain sane. Yeah. Uh, so I'm posting a lot of food pictures, <laughs> a lot of pictures of my dog, and I'm posting music that I'm listening to, and we do a movie week with my Ruben Report community, because I think that's what people need right now. We're in like, you know, everyone's kind of feeling like, whoa, what is the future? Like, are the systems all crashing down? Like, all we all thought that our lives would always be safe and secure and maybe they aren't. And now, you know, could that be because of a pandemic or government overreach or a million other things? So, you know, there's there's tumult right now, but I also think there's opportunity in that. I think your strategy is kind of the way I'm taking things too, because as someone who has a show, there are people who kind of anytime I talk about something other than Corona, um, they say, really, there's a pandemic going on and you're talking about this. But I kind of, I feel like people can get burnt out just living in panic mode 24-7, and I feel like the non-stop wall-to-wall coverage after a certain point is not helping anything, right? It, people can't live uh, for weeks or it's looking like months on end constantly being bombarded with warning messages. So I kind of see our show as, hey, sometimes let's talk a little bit about something a little more laid back. Let's talk about movies or, you know, some something dating crazy that's happening on Reddit. And I think people need that relief. But you mentioned libertarianism and classical liberalism. It's an interesting time for, I think, people who subscribe to those ideologies because I think Obviously, people want people to be safe. No one wants old people or uh, people who are immunocompromised to die. But there's this conversation happening right now about government overreach. What is what are the proper measures? Uh, are is the government going to voluntarily, when the time comes, roll things back themselves? Is this the new normal? This is what I think more and more people are wondering right now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Look, politicians generally never let a crisis go to waste, right? So they see a time when people are confused, people are scared, and what do they generally want to do? They generally want to then use their power, their political power, to get more involved in our lives, they, to also be able to use the new money that they can magically make appear to start funneling it into their pet projects, like the $25 million uh, that Pelosi used yes. for the J. What was it? The Kennedy, the Kennedy Center. Center. Yeah. And he happens to sit on the board of the thing. And it's like, what does that have to do with uh, securing people for Corona? Because even though I'm not for just handing money out to all the people, I'm pretty sure we could have figured out 
a better way to use that $25 million. I mean, look, there's a lot of interesting things here because you can almost see all the flaws in everyone's argument. And maybe that shows you that humans are a bit messy and that none of our arguments are perfectly waterproof, right? So for example, like you'll see right now a huge amount of people across the political spectrum demanding that the federal government do more and Trump must do this and these are the things we must do. We're hearing that very often from the same people who have been calling Trump Hitler for the past four years, the very people who have been saying this is the worst authoritarian, power-hungry demagogue of all time. And what do we need him to do? More stuff. And what should we give him? More power. And it's like, do you guys not get the flaw in your argument? Now, that's yeah. one thing. Uh, but then the other thing, of course, for the limited government people is in a time like this, when you don't want the government doing a lot of stuff, it's like, how much can the private sector do to secure us in a time of a pandemic? How much can, in, from an American perspective, how much can the states do themselves? Because a pandemic, obviously a virus, doesn't care whether it's crossing the border from New York to Jersey and over right. to Connecticut and Delaware and anywhere else. So there are things that the government is supposed to do, but I think you framed the question correctly, which is, once you've given powers, once you've given more money to people, once you've taken rights away, you know, right now, one of, the, one of our most precious rights is our right to assemble. Um, and we don't have that right right now. In effect, it has been suspended. That, that's kind of scary stuff. Now, I'm not saying we should be assembling and, you know, we should be doing the social distancing of six feet and all that. But I also live in L.A. where our mayor, Eric Garcetti, is telling people to snitch on each other. I mean, that's what that's what communist states do, right? That's what communist Russia did. That's what the bad guys do throughout time. The, the real Nazis, not the imaginary Nazis. So we all have to be careful what we wish for and really think through what our beliefs are. My preference would be right now, a lot of what I think is happening, which is that the private uh, market, that private companies and enterprise are innovating, finding new ways to get masks, the My Pillow guy who is being mocked relentlessly on CNN and New York Times and everywhere else, the guy is making 50,000 masks, something right. like that. He doesn't have to do that. But people want to contribute. And I would never want everything to have to come from the government. And this is ultimately what the biggest flaw of the argument of the left is. They say, oh, the government screws everything up. The government's run by bad people. And what's their solution? Make the government bigger give them more money, give them more power. And my hope is that by the end of this, because eventually we will get out of this thing, that people will think about these things more clearly. And by the way, people are also going to think about things like China. You mm -hmm. know, Trump is going to kind of look like a winner on China for being hard on China. States' rights are going to become important again. Uh, guns, I think, is now going to be a much more winning thing for the right. I think it's been trending that way anyway. Um, and a series of other things. Um, so we're, we're in interesting times right now. And you know, we also have an election coming up. I don't know if you heard about that. And we'll yeah. see what happens with that. And we've got more with Dave. But first, I want to tell you all about objective wellness. Staying healthy and strong is more important now than ever. And to help me stay resilient and well, I take supplements from Objective Wellness. Objective offers targeted solutions like better sleep, firmer skin, or a healthy immune system. And you all know by now that my immune system 
is terrible. I am sick all the time, which is why I am such a fan of Objective Wellness's immune and wellness gummies. I, I don't eat candy, but I can make an exception if it's a gummy that's actually good for me. Objective's ingredients are backed by science behind each ingredient. There are scientific studies and endless hours of research. Objective sources active ingredients from blueberries, saffron, and even microalgae, which provides an antioxidant 6,000 times stronger than vitamin C. Objective helps me feel my best and they can help you too. Go to objectivewellness.com and use the code Lauren to get 20% off your first order. If you're not completely satisfied, you can get a full refund. That's the objective promise. Again, that's objectivewellness.com with the code Lauren for 20% off. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and any products discussed or advertised are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I love that you bring out that you want social distancing, you believe in it, but the idea of neighbors snitching on neighbors, right? Because there's this concept in totalitarianism called atomization, right? You want to chip mm -hmm. away the bonds between communities, even between family members, and assure loyalty to the states and to the state itself. And it just, I feel like we're kind of getting there. And I've gotten into it on Twitter. I'm on Twitter more now. I think a lot of people are since I'm stuck inside, but that you can want people to voluntarily do something and see the value in social distancing, but still say, look at cases uh, of fathers being arrested for playing ball with his daughter in the park and say, is this the, the best thing to do? But I feel like our culture has lost the concept of personal responsibility and the idea that that maybe you should just do something because rather than because the government is going to arrest you if you don't do it, right? And I've had this conversation countless times lately when I when I raise concerns about, about these, what I think are, I guess, violations of personal freedoms and you always get hit with, so you don't believe in social distancing, so you want all these things? No, I just want people to voluntarily do that. How do we begin to, I guess, break people of the notion that if you want something done, it has to be the government or if you have this personal belief that you need the government to do it because it's not just, I guess, coronavirus is one of the biggest manifestations of this attitude right now, but it happens for everything any conversation mm. we have it come there are people who want to take it into an issue of oh so you want the government to do this or not do this and it's like no i'm just having a conversation about what we should do as individuals as citizens well i think the answer to your question actually lauren is to continue doing what you do continue doing what i do i mean talk about rights and freedom and liberty so that people understand that these are things, certainly from an American perspective, but I actually believe from a human perspective, you are born free. In the United States, the Constitution protects your freedom. The government can come and take away your freedom, but it did not make me free. Mm -hmm. And we have, to be very, uh, we have to be very aware and careful that in times like this, when we're now sort of all locked in our houses, and the only time we're seeing each other, I know you have a dog too, is when we're walking our dogs, and I've been going out of my way to be friendlier, I mean, I try, I try gener gen uh, generally to be friendly with the neighbors, but I've been trying to be even friendlier, make a point of saying hi to everybody. I've introduced myself to a few people. Now we're doing it from the six feet, if not mm -hmm. more. And often our dogs are, you know, the dogs are going at each other, but we're taking our space to do it. But, you know, this, the term social distancing in a way is kind of dangerous because we are social creatures. The only way a human is actually able to attain a view of the world that makes sense is by bouncing their ideas off other humans. And that's how good ideas flourish, right? If you are completely cut off from the world, you have no idea 
how to how to relate to anything. Other humans are actually a mirror into yourself. So we're now all we've been sold this idea of social distancing, which I understand is important to flatten the curve and, and slow the spread of coronavirus. That's fine. And we should all be doing that. Right. I don't have a magically better way to stop this thing than that. That being said, we should be careful that as we now are all forced at home and we're forced on Twitter more for communication and we're forced on Zoom and FaceTime and all of these things that we're using them properly, meaning and by properly, I mean to not just be fighting about politics and trying to destroy everybody and continue the cancel culture that you and I and many others have been fighting against, but to actually be social, like to really think about the world right now. Like we all have an incredible opportunity to think about the world that is on the horizon right now in a way that we wouldn't have thought of, right? Back in January, nobody was thinking, whoa, could, could everything be completely different by May? Nobody really was thinking that, right? And now we're, we're kind of all thinking it. We're all thinking, when does this thing fix itself? And what will it be like? Well, after this, will we, Will we suddenly be in the roaring 20s when everyone will want to be out and spending money and, you know, just social and, and happy and crazy? Or are we going to be more distant and scared and want to hoard more and all of these things? I mean, societies, all societies are at very precarious places right now. And I think there's a unfortunately just a small amount of people that are trying to guide us through it in a, in a sane way. Just because we're not seeing each other face to face, that doesn't mean we have to cut off all communication. Because I think for a lot of people, the social isolation is, is beginning to be a little bit of a drain. And I know, I mean, yeah. you know, I live with family members, so I, I'm lucky in that regard. But if I imagine if, if I didn't have those people around me, what it would feel like. But for anyone who's feeling a little bit lonely, uh, you do have your new book, that is out. Don't burn this book. <laughs> Love that title. So there's so much that I want to get to in this that I want to ask you about. Uh, I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. Um, if you had to give a quick rundown to someone about why you wanted to write this book and what's in it to begin with, what would you say? Because there's like there's actually a lot of different things that are covered in this. I was really it's it's almost like a journey that it takes you through uh, from your own perspective and just of the political landscape in general. But what I guess would be your quick pitch of why people should buy this book? Because I really believe that they should. Yeah, well, you know, I opened the book up by saying that originally the book was going to be called Why I Left the Left. And that's sort of become a phrase that I'm associated with because I did a Prager video, a Prager U video called Why I Left the Left. And it caught fire. And I, it's, I think it's got over 10 million views. And people associate that with me. And, and really what the publishers wanted was Dave, tell that story, the story you've been telling for all these years. And that's when I signed the thing, I signed the, you know, I got the advance and the whole thing. That was the book I was going to write. And, and after a couple of weeks of writing it, I kind of felt like not, not only had I said all this stuff before, um, but I didn't want to just write a book about the things I was against. I wanted to write a book about the things that I'm for. And really, that's what this book is about. It's not, yes, I do lay out some of the reasons I left the left. I lay out plenty of the reasons that I'm frustrated by the left and, and how collectivism and progressivism and socialism and authoritarianism have all combined into some really evil thing that has basically decimated the, the Democratic Party and left this group of people with almost no good ideas, which I think many of us now see. Uh, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to write about, well, what are the things that I'm for? Once I woke up politically, once I went basically from woke to awake, well, then what did that mean? What do I believe in now? And that's really what I lay out in this book. I go chapter by chapter in many cases 
uh, talking about the different issues of the day and how, through what I believe is the best, most correct political lens, the classical liberal lens, which is basically that you believe in individual rights with the light touch of government when necessary. That's pretty much it. I think it's your life and you should live it how you see fit. And I'll live my life how I see fit with some basic guardrails so that we can allow people to flourish. I think that is the, the best way to make a functioning society that will be the most welcoming to the most amount of people and increase human freedom and increase human ingenuity and allow us to flourish in the, in the way that humans are supposed to flourish. So really the book, it started as it was gonna be about, you know, why did I leave this thing and what am I against? But it really became what I'm for. And, you know, it's a real journey being on a book. I, I gave this everything that I've got and uh, and I think I think people are going to dig it. And before we go any further, I want to tell you all about Home Title Lock. When life is in chaos, your home is your safe haven, your most important asset. But do you own it? Don't be so sure. Imagine getting evicted for non-payment of a loan, a loan you never took out. It happened to Deborah, and it's happening everywhere. It's called home title theft, and the FBI calls it one of the fastest growing crimes. It's why I urge you to get home title lock. Your home's legal title is kept online, and thieves know it. They'll forge your signature on your home's title, and that's it. On paper, they will own your home, and they'll take loans out on it. Your bank doesn't cover you, and neither does your insurance. The only way I know to avoid this nightmare and Possible eviction is with Home Title Lock. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim and use code Lauren for 30 free days of protection to help you get through this crisis. Again, enter Lauren at HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. I love that distinction, by the way, of wanting to be more than a reactionary, not just against something, but for something. And I think when you read your book, you really do get that sense that these are, this is not just a reaction to someone did something, therefore I'm doing this. This is a, about a, a cohesive belief system. And you you kind of, you touch on the difference between liberalism and leftism quite a bit. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Because that particular point has, it's currently a contentious one among people on the left or who are liberals. We have a lot of, I think, disaffected liberals would probably be the, the most accurate thing to call them. Um, maybe people like Tim Poole who are spending a lot of their time calling out the left right now. And you have people on the left saying, see, you're right wing now, but they're like, no, I'm as liberal as I ever were, as I ever was, but you're doing these things that aren't very liberal. So what is the difference there? And how would you say each side is manifest in the culture right now? Like when we see people like AOC, um, you know, trying to tie coronavirus uh, relief to reparations. Is that a liberal thing to do? Is that a leftist? How can we tell the difference? Well, I'll just start with that one specifically. No, that is completely illiberal. When when AOC wants to tie coronavirus into, you know, a stimulus package about coronavirus, which is an emergency situation that I would actually argue the government in this case, the federal government does have to do something. States can't do everything alone right now because, uh, as I said, a virus doesn't care where the border mm -hmm. is. So we need states to do things and the federal government to do things. But when AOC tries to push reparations into a stimulus package or the Democrats try to push diversity quotas in or they put all of their pork so that, you know, the, the performing arts center gets this and all of these things. That's the reverse of liberalism, because liberalism in its true sense, in the classical sense, is about the light touch of government, meaning what you want is people to live their lives freely with individual rights. And this is the key to the whole thing. And this is the key to Western society overall. 
that everyone who is a citizen, I'll do this from an, an American and, and really a Canadian perspective as well, but if you live in the West, this is basically broadly true, that if you live in the West, we have individual rights, meaning that regardless of your gender, your sexuality, your national origin, if you're a citizen of the country, we should have equal rights for everybody. You don't get extra rights because of your sexuality. You don't get extra rights because of your skin color or your gender or anything else. That is the core piece of classical liberalism. This is an ideology that you know has been born and churned through over hundreds of years from John Locke and John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and Thomas Jefferson and the list goes on and on. You know, we don't really find old school liberals anymore because the left, and this is the difference, leftism is about collectivism, it's about socialism, it's about Bernie Sandersism, which you know, then you throw in some identity politics into that mix, where first it's that we have this giant government, the government can do everything, right? And now we combine it with, and we're going to treat black people this way, white people this way, able-bodied people this way, trans people this way, gay people this way, Muslims must think this, Jews must think this. That, that, that. These are the complete worst ideas. They're the worst time-tested ideas of all time, and they've become hot amongst young people through Bernie Sanders and the intersectionalists. These are terrible ideas that have nothing to do with liberalism. So I think part of the confusion when you mention that and you say somebody like Tim Pool, who's a an old school liberal, and but he'll still say he's on the left, or now you're now you're on the right because you talk to the conservatives or something like that. The left and right thing, you know, a bunch of us have been talking about this for a couple of years. The left and right thing doesn't have that much weight anymore. I think the new prism to look at things through is you're basically either an authoritarian, you believe in state power, that that's the most important thing, and that through the state we can then manipulate people to create some sort of perfect society. Or you believe in libertarianism, and I don't mean the libertarian party, but meaning that you believe in the individual and that you think that an individual here can build a society upwards. The collectivists saw the weakness of liberalism, and there is a weakness of liberalism, which is that liberals kind of always want to be nice in a way that conservatives, I don't think, always want to be nice. Conservatives like facts, and liberals, even the old school liberals, like facts, but then there was always this sort of, you know, the phrase bleeding heart liberal. Liberals wanted to be sort of nice and open and jokey, and there was a little less of a religious attachment to liberalism than there was to conservatism. And I think the socialists and the collectivists and the, and the, the Bernie Sanders crew, the progressives, and even the Islamists, by the way, they all saw that soft underbelly of liberalism, and they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to bust in here, and we're going to infect this host. When people talk about liberalism, very few people mean the liberalism that we're talking about here. They're not talking about JFK. Ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what your country. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. They're they're talking about the reverse of that, which is literally what AOC is saying all the time. Um, so that really is why leftism and liberalism have nothing to do with each other. But I but it does explain a little bit of how the leftists sort of destroyed liberalism. So I don't know that I can save liberalism, but what I would say is I can hopefully conserve it a little bit with the conservatives. The whole bleeding heart liberal idea, I think that is something that authoritarians are really leveraging right now. They're, they're yeah. trying to connect the idea of authoritarianism being the more compassionate uh, route. Because what I often hear is that it's you're not really free if you're subjected to hatred or bigotry or why should we be for, for example, unlimited freedom of speech if it means freedom to spout hate 
against someone. So we have people who are using this want for compassion and to treat everyone well that, uh, you know, of course, a lot of people have. Who, who wouldn't want that? They're using it to limit people's rights. And I think we see this so much from people like AOC, who love to present themselves as fighting for the marginalized groups, but doing that in a way that actually restricts everybody's freedom. So what would you say is the balance we should have between that? Is it is it a really a free society if we allow some people to be discriminated against? Should there be restrictions on that? How do we weigh those two competing interests? Because I know a lot of people right now are more and more saying, that, you know what, you're right. We shouldn't have the freedom to do this if it means it can be done in a hateful way. Right. Well, we have to distinguish between being hateful and discriminatory as individual people versus the government. You know, you can't, you can't force all of the people on earth not to be bigots and not to be prejudiced and not to be uh, racist or anything like that, or homophobes or anything like Maybe that. Maybe it's because we're just not trying enough, though. Maybe ah. if we came down harder, we could do it. You're right. You know who used to think something like that? A guy by the name of Thanos. And you know what he had to do? <laughs> he had to wipe out half the universe to create his Shangri-La. And I actually only mean that slightly as a joke, but the, the metaphor of Thanos from the Avengers movies is the right one. Thanos saw limited resources in the universe, and he said, I am the good guy and the only, I will do the thing that none of you will do. I will kill half the life in the universe to create a utopia for all of us. Except all of us really only means half of us because he had to wipe out half the people there. But he did it thinking he was the good guy. So I don't have any doubt that AOC thinks she's the good guy even though she's not. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But we have to be very careful that you cannot eliminate the ideas of hatred. What you can do is you can hopefully neuter them and neutralize them by showing people that, you know what, you're not going to believe this. All black people don't think the same thing. So you should treat black people like individuals, meaning that if you meet a black fellow on the street, you shouldn't think, oh, there's a black man and he must think what all black people think. That is actually prejudging, which of course is known as prejudice. Mm -hmm. And the same would go for a Muslim person or a gay person, or even the scariest of all things, a straight white Christian male. You know, they don't all think the same things. And we should know that. Now, part of the problem here is because of what I talked about before, where the, the left now believes in this top-down thing, they think they can create a perfect system, but when you, you can't. And you know why you can't? Because we're the ones that have to create the system, humans, and we are flawed. We are imperfect. So the idea that we could create a perfect system, it's exactly why the ideas of socialism kill millions and millions of people throughout the ages because you have to get rid of all the undesirables you have uh, undesirables you uh, undesirables jeez <laughs> i've been talking a lot today i've done a lot of interviews um, you have to get rid of all of them you have to get, you have to have neighbor snitch on neighbor for wrong think uh, that is deeply dangerous what i would prefer and what i think my my political evolution let's say has proven is that as I stepped away from that and I, and I moved towards the right and started talking to conservatives and libertarians and the rest of it, that I found all of these people who I disagree with on some stuff, from some of them from gay marriage, although most have sort of moved on from that, but, but I'm, I'm still begrudgingly pro-choice that I talk about in the book. Uh, I'm for some level of public education. I'm for dignity with death. I'm against the death penalty. I mean, a bunch of things that are thought of as lefty ideas, but I get nothing but hate from the left, you would think some of them would be like, oh, he even married a dude, like, I guess he's okay. <laughs> but no, they don't like, you know, they don't like the individual, so they have to purge you. While on the right, there's a whole group of people that 
are happy to agree to disagree because they accept that we're all individuals and that we all want to live in a pluralistic society and that we should be having the battle of ideas. We should be debating abortion. We should be debating states' rights or taxes or the death penalty or anything else because it's up for debate in a free society as long until the point when we start killing each other. And that's the point that I want to, you know, hopefully get us to, uh, if we're going down a road like this and the clip's over here, let's, let's take a sharp right. You know? Right. Here's hoping. And I, I find that so interesting hearing in, in this book, you, you talk about it a lot, kind of this political evolution that you've been on. And I feel like it, everyone, or I, I would hope most people throughout their lives do reflect on some of the things they used to believe and think, mm, I don't know if I still believe that. Uh, my experiences have changed. I've learned more as I've gone on. I'm not someone who's ever had one of those walk away moments. But if I look back on my beliefs over the past 10 years, when I kind of first started being interested in politics, my opinions have changed on things like abortion, foreign policy, um, you know, libertarianism versus conservatism, religion in general. I've, I am in no way the same person as I was 15 years ago. And I think the only reason I was able to grow and develop in this way, for better or worse, people will probably make their own judgments about that. But it, I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for open political discourse. And one of the scary things I, I see about echo chambers forming and being reinforced online is that I think these journeys are going to be less likely to happen. If, if you're just in, you know, this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, orange man bad all the time, or conversely, orange man right all the time. How, how do you, as someone who has a show that has all sorts of ideologies and peoples and, and speakers on, how do we begin to chip through those echo, echo chambers? Because I want these evolutions to keep happening. I want people to keep striving for what they think is the truth or right, not just be entrenched in their same old views. Yeah, well, first, fundamentally, you really should just think about yourself for a moment. Do you, whoever's watching this right now, whatever your color is or your gender or your sexuality or any of that stuff, do you think that is the totality of who you are? And if you do think that's the totality of who you are, that's really sad because you're a clone. I mean, that's all you are. You are a clone that was given some genes and those genes basically dictate who you are for the rest of your life. I don't believe that's the case. And I don't think most people really believe that. And as a matter of fact, I think that even if we took the most stereotypical 22-year-old Portland Antifa purple-haired, you know, <laughs> that thing that you can picture in your mind. Right, right I already now. have an image. <laughs> yeah, you got the image in your mind, right? Like even that person, they'll scream about intersectionality and scream about identity politics. But of course, if you whittled them down, if you could ever get them to sit down and listen, you know damn well that they would only want to be judged on what they thought. Because often, by the way, what are they? They right. are usually privileged white people, <laughs> the thing that they're railing against the most. So. So you have to show people that first, more than anything else, you are an individual. You are a human being with choice. It is like this most precious God-given thing that you can choose and you can think and you can evolve. And I always find it funny when I've been so open about my political evolution and that I was a lefty and now I'm not. And people will find this old clip of mine from like six years ago where I'm li literally, I'm doing a video saying I agree with virtually everything Bernie Sanders says. And people will post that video and they'll see, see, Dave Rubin's a flip-flopper. He's a flip-flopper. Or he doesn't believe everything he's saying. See, he used to believe that. That's when he was good. 
And it's like, no, I actually am telling you, quite honestly, I used to believe in a lot of bad ideas because they're very easy at the surface level, right? All of that stuff, all of those factory settings that we're all sort of given through culture and, and media and all those things, Democrats good, Republicans bad, lefties are for poor people, right? People on the right like money. Democrats are anti-war, Republicans are pro-war, Democrats love freedom, Republicans are authoritarians. Those are the things that you just sort of get in you through culture and TV and everything else. And that's why there's such a battle right now between mainstream media and what we do, because we've started proving that that is simply not the case. And that's why almost everything funny in the world of memes and everything else is coming out of the right. There's nothing funny coming out of the left. And not only nothing coming, funny coming out of the left, but the very people that are supposed to lead the left in, in comedy, a guy like Jimmy Kimmel, hmm, it's pretty funny that he's been in blackface. He used to do <laughs> Carl Malone in blackface. His ex-girlfriend, Sarah Silverman, she's been in blackface. They're both huge lefties who run around calling everybody racist. But for some reason, I don't see that with people on the right. I mean, it's, it's very bizarre. And yet it's also obvious once you really whittle it down to what it is. This kind of ties into the idea of cancel culture. And you have an entire portion of your book, which is dedicated to the idea of do not surrender to the mob and mobs right now. It's funny for people who never leave the house or a generation who tends not to too much. We love forming online mobs. And I think, you know, you mentioned this with yourself, your own experiences, clips of you from six years ago. People love trying to dig up and criminate however they can. And what, what really bothers me about the whole approach so many people have to public discourse right now is that it's not really done with the intent to change minds a lot of the time or to elucidate anything. It's, it's, they're trying to destroy you. They're trying to tear you down. And it's really frustrating, especially some of the things I've seen people almost get canceled for or get canceled for have happened 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. And I think back what I was doing 20 years ago, being a five-year-old, I definitely wouldn't want it to be, you know, what I'm judged on now. Um, how do we, how do we combat this type of behavior while still, I guess, wanting to hold people uh, accountable? Because I think, you know, there's something, okay, if maybe if you're a politician, like, do we not look at your record? Is it different if you're an individual? These are things that I'm trying my best to navigate to as consumers. Uh, how much should uh, people's personal lives maybe impact our buying decisions? You know, I'm, I'm against cancel culture in general, but I admit there have been times lately where I'm not sure what to do anymore. Amber Heard, do I still see her movies even though she's uh, apparently been beating up Johnny Depp? It's it's not always as, as cut and clear. Yeah, well, that's a... Absolutely great question. And again, I think it, if you really whittle it down, it comes down to individual choice. So for example, uh, I talked about the Avengers before. I mean, two of the main Avengers, Chris Evans, who's Captain America, and Mark Ruffalo, who's the Hulk, they are complete far left loons. They call everybody racist. They have major Trump derangement syndrome, you know, half the country's evil, blah, blah, blah. Now, I basically like superhero movies, although I do think that by the end of The Last Avengers, the whole genre has now sort of eaten itself. I think Star Wars is suffering from some of that too. We desperately need new stories, uh, we okay. need new fiction. You That's and I need to have a whole episode, a different one about pop culture and movies because I, I, we need to talk about this at some point, but yes, carry yeah. on. <laughs> no, oh no, I'm, we, can, we can absolutely do that now too. But I think just that that was sort of a side that we generally need new stories. I mean, stories are the things that inspire us. Yeah. And in the book, I get, in, I get into how I've changed 
my feelings on the importance of biblical stories, which I now view as deeply important, partly because I was on the road with Jordan Peterson for almost two years. But, but I use those two guys as an example because they are lefties who stand against everything I stand. Uh, they stand for everything that I stand against uh, and vice versa. And part of me, when I go to those movies, like, I mean, I find Mark Ruffalo very irritating as the Hulk anyway, but like when I watch them in those movies, I kind of can't get over that. Like I'm giving my money to those people, but I make an individual choice that basically I like popcorn and I like, <laughs> you know, part of the cultural whatever and the big explosions of going to Avengers movies. Mark Hamill, by the way, Luke Skywalker is another crazed lefty. I mean, I love Star Wars, Star Wars, although the last couple have been pretty terrible. But like I'm giving my money to these people. But the point is that it's up to you. I would never try to get Star Wars canceled because right. Mark Hamill is a crazed lefty. I think it's up to you. So if you find out that um, Chick-fil-A is at first standing up against the mob, so you want to uh, support them more, great. And now they've sort of bowed to the mob. So if you don't want to go there, great. A good example, um, Ben and Jerry's, which has been lefty, 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 Bernie supporting the whole thing. And then they were specifically selling ice cream to like raise money for some progressive causes. I think I would never want to give that my money, no matter how much I loved the ice cream, but I wouldn't stop anyone from doing it. And I think that's part of what the problem is when the whole Chick-fil-A thing happened, people just, regardless of what the truth was about the owner having given some money about gay rights. And it, doesn't, it didn't even matter what the exact truth is. And by the way, half the people protesting, if not 80, 90% of the people had no idea what the absolute truth was. What they wanted to do was just destroy a business because somebody felt different than them. And I always use Tucker Carlson as the, as the real example of this, because, you know, Tucker every week, Media Matters and HuffPo and Vox and all that crap at the Daily Beast and the rest of them, they're always trying to take out Tucker. Now, it's not because they just hate this one man and want this one man to be destroyed, although they do not like him and do not like his ideas. And he happens to be an extremely good communicator of his ideas, so he is dangerous. But really what they're trying to do is they're trying to signal to everybody at home, you see, we can even take out Tucker Carlson, so you better sit down and shut up because we'll take you out too. So I think that for people like us, Lauren, I mean, basically, we have to model behavior. So I think for those of us that, that care about freedom, that want people to live freely and fairly and fight for what's theirs and keep what they earn and all of those things, um, I just think keeping our cool a little bit more than they do uh, is a huge key to it. And by the way, that's not that difficult because they're so hysterical. So just being a little bit better than that is something we all can. And the last thing that I want to ask you, because I know you have a, a whole bunch more interviews to do to promote this book, but you mentioned fake news. You write about fake news. And I think that's a very relevant topic, especially living in the time of coronavirus. But I, I don't know, is it just is it just us? Because I, I remember growing up and I CNN, yeah, CNN is respectable, of course. But when I look at the pieces that CNN publishes now, or even places like the New York Times, Washington Post, places that growing up and even all the way up at university, I was citing their stuff in, in papers, I thought were reputable, were objective. I, it kills me. I cannot believe sometimes the pieces that they put out or things that their reporters say are are we just more aware of the bias now or has it always been like this? Maybe I just didn't realize it and I've been red-pilled because it, it feels like it's it's ridiculous. I don't know how they can even with a straight face claim to be objective. I know, it, it's, it's such an interesting question and let's go back a little bit before, uh, before your time, but sort of to my time and a little bit before that. You know, back in the day when television started, 
ultimate, when we finally got to network news, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and they pretty much showed the same things, maybe in a slightly different order, but the Overton window was pretty closed, meaning that you were going to get sort of the same information, and you pretty much decided which one to watch, depending on which network anchor you like. Then CNN comes along. We now have cable 24-hour news. And I remember I was in uh, ninth grade during the Gulf War, and that's really when, uh, this is 1990, I think, that's really when CNN got fully put on the map. And suddenly, we were watching live footage in a war zone, which had never been seen before. And there was this feeling like, oh, this is real and raw and, and valuable. And by the way, it was. Then you flash forward some years. Now we've got MSNBC on the left. You've got Fox on the right. And now everybody's splintering off their news and what they believe is true into a million different ways. And you really have to remember, and this is the part that is really hard for people to accept, what business are they in? Are they in the business of truth? Are they in the business of journalism? Or are they in the business of, in the New York Times case, selling papers? In CNN's case, making sure that people buy advertising for their programs. They're in the business of making money, not necessarily of telling the truth. And for me to sit here and say that the New York Times is a, is a truthful organization would be absurd. Everyone sees it now. We've all been screaming about it. Lauren, were you on the cover of the Times when they did that thing about how YouTube is, is pushing people to the alt-right? No, no, thing? actually. And to tell, tell you the truth, I felt a little bit left out. I felt <laughs> like all of my friends are up there. Where's my, my piece? But no, I wasn't. I know which so piece that, you're talking about, uh, though. Yeah. So I'm sorry that you didn't make it, but you know, you'll, you'll have your day, I promise. Um, but in that ridiculous piece where they talk about uh, front page of the Sunday New York Times, this is, I don't know, about six, eight months ago, maybe, maybe a little bit more. I write about this in the book. Front page of the Sunday New York Times, there's this giant grid with all these YouTubers and how we're radicalizing people to the far right. And when you see these lies over and over and over and over again, as, as you have and so many of the online people have, I think what's interesting right now is that because everyone's trapped at home right now and online more because of coronavirus, I actually think the, the red pilling, if you want to call it that, is, is proliferating in a really impactful way right now. Because I think a lot of people are suddenly seeing it. So I would say more than anything else, we have to keep fighting back. Um, whether big tech is gonna allow us to, whether we're right. all being to oblivion, another issue. Um, but there's, there's a lot to deal with right now. And we need good voices like you to just keep pushing so that we don't go off that ledge I was talking about before. I do appreciate that. And for people who want to be more in tune with your voice and all you're doing to, I guess, spread more information, open up the dialogue, where can people find you? Of course, they can get this book starting April 28th. Uh, is it going to be, I guess, people aren't really going to bookstores, but I'm assuming everywhere yeah. online? It, it is everywhere. You can go to don'tburnthisbook.com. And of course, it's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all your local retailers. We're trying to help out the local guys as much as possible, um, of course. So you can go to don'tburnthisbook.com where you can find out more about what I'm doing and the show and the podcast and all that good stuff at rubinreport.com. And I've had that Lauren Chen girl, even though she didn't make it into that grid. <laughs> and and I sh I'm going to write a very angry letter to the New York Times. How did you leave Lauren Chen how did you leave roaming millennials? Yeah, I guess I just got to step up the edginess. <laughs> you know, just not edgy enough. I need to be a little bit more inflammatory. I can be in the next hit piece. But thank you so much for, for joining us. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I hope you take care. Stay safe. Uh, this is scary times and just be healthy. You too, Lauren. Always great seeing you. Stay safe. Thanks.